I'm Julian G. Simmons. This is Talking About Our Generation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And to those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome aboard. We're so happy to have you with us. Talking about our generation, this podcast is all about connection, sharing, caring, communicating, aimed at baby boomers like me, those of us born between 1946 and 1964. We're about remembering who we were and what we've accomplished and what all that means today, right now. This week, we continue our series of Woodstock episodes exploring the magic behind that iconic event. At Woodstock, millions of us came together, either in person or in spirit, and joined forces creating a whole new culture of peace, justice, and freedom. So in that spirit, we continue now with a conversation with John Morris, the head of production at Woodstock, as well as the famous friendly voice booming from the stage. Woodstock could easily have been a complete disaster, but John kept his cool and his calming voice reverberated through the audience of half a million people, and it still echoes today. Here's my conversation with John. So tell me how you started out with this. Well, I started to do concerts for Bill Graham, and he decided to open Phil Maurice, and I set it up and put it together. And then in April that year, uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Bert Cohen, who eventually did the advertising for Woodstock, and had a meeting with Bert and Chip Monk and uh, Mike Lang, and they outlined this idea of doing a festival. They had met John Roberts and Joel Rosenman and come up with the idea to do a three-day outdoor concert in the country in upstate New York. And they came to me and said, uh, you know, you have the experience of dealing with the artists and booking bands, and you know all the people, and would you be willing to come on as the head of production and talent booking? We brought in Santana, Joe Cocker. I'd seen Santana with Graham in California and was just totally knocked out. It was a staggering band that nobody knew about on the East Coast. Uh, Joe Cocker I'd seen in England, and so we booked them. Getting Santana was one of those great lucky strokes for us, for the band. I heard something that you said about Santana in actually your nephew's documentary, Crady Woodstock. Maybe you can expound a little on it. You were talking about how booking Santana was an advantage with Graham, with Bill Graham. It was politically a really good move to keep Bill on our side. Bill was the power in those days because he was the one who had dealt with all the agents. He taught me how to deal with the agents, introduced me to most of them. And uh, keeping Bill happy was a really good idea. So was he, he was obviously the kind of person that a, a, te- a manager of a band could go to and say, hey, Bill, do you think this is a good idea? Or he could have said, no, it's not a good idea. He could have made it difficult. Uh, I don't think he would have, but he could have. Bill hated the idea of, uh, festivals or uh, anything more than 3,000 seats, Bill didn't think was the right thing for music. So he could have made it a failure. Yeah, basically. he could have he, he, he could, he yeah. could have put the kibosh on it very easily. 
So we flew Bill and his wife out for the festival, put him up in Grossairs, uh, where he'd been a busboy. <laughs> really? Uh, and a waiter years ago. <laughs> That's great. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but he hated the festival. He hated the idea of it. Uh, and But he didn't. He didn't do us any harm. He didn't. He, in certain ways, actively helped us, but in the main, he didn't do anything that was going to cause us a problem. Obviously, this was like the first event for most of you guys, including you, that you worked on anything of this of this magnitude, caliber. Yeah. yeah, I had a bet with Mike Lang about how many people we'd have because none of us really do. The biggest concert to that date was the Beatles in Shea Stadium, fifty-five thousand people. Uh, and Monterey Pop, which had been two years before, was actually only 35,000 people over three days. So nobody had any conception that we were going to deal with half a million people. But our technical people had the good sense and the vision to realize we could get snowed under. And so they put in 40 miles of underground water pipe all over the site. Wow. Uh, they carved roads. They brought in 48 pairs of telephone lines because, of course, there were no, there was not even a mobile phone. Right. They worked really well anticipating how things could be much, much bigger than we thought it was possible. So when you, when you were uh, talking to musicians, what were your selling points to them? This is going to be the East Coast answer to Monterey Pop. But bigger. But bigger. <laughs> so many things could have gone wrong. I mean, it had been an utter disaster. All of these musicians and everyone stuck on the throughway and um, and nobody being able to go pick them up because it just was an impossibility at that moment. There was nothing I could do because of everybody out on the road. Right. The first thing I heard on Friday was, just can't get in. We keep trying. We keep trying. We keep trying. It was getting into the afternoon. We didn't have anybody to play because we weren't getting the musicians in that fast. So we sent a helicopter and we flew the artists and bands and all the people. And then in the mid of all this madness, we just started filling in as much as we could. So who was the first band you brought on, or, or musician? Richie Havens was there, had his band, or most of it. And so it was like, Richie, will you go on? And he was like, I'm not supposed to go on for hours, man. And I said, I know, but, you know, we got to start. And so he went on and did it. Let's welcome Mr. Richie Havens. He must have played five or six encores, and he was the only talent there. And finally, he started to walk off stage, and I went and put my arm around him and said, Richie, you got to go back and do one more. And he said, I don't know anymore. I said, please, Richie, one more. So he went out and he did the Freedom Song, just made it up on the spot. known was Richie then? I don't remember, actually. He was really sort of a folk singer. We wanted to have that first day be light, uh, be folky-type people with Mike Baez and Richie and Incredible String Band, that kind of stuff. So he was not a big star. He became... Uh, the nice thing about Woodstock is that there are a lot of people whose careers just took off because of Woodstock. And Which so, ones took off? Well, Richie... Shalala took off in a different direction. <laughs> Santana, obviously. 
uh, Joe Cocker, mm-hmm. uh, were all new to the audience. Right. And the one thing you have to remember, and I more I've been thinking about it and talking to people about Woodstock, is that Mike Wadley and that movie is what everybody has in their head about Woodstock. No, it's what I had in my head because I was one of those people who actually was stuck on the throughway coming from Buffalo, New York for, I, I don't know, eight or 10 hours. Sorry about that. We ran out of cigarettes. We didn't know what to do. So we finally were able to turn around and go home because it was not, we were too far away to even walk there. You know, everything that I know, my experience of, of Woodstock is that movie. I just saw a book last night that uh, my friend Dale Bell, who was the associate producer, has done about the making of the film and the people involved in it. And they were just, they put it together. They had no money. They begged, borrowed, or stole cameras, stock. We got them $100,000 on the first day so that they could help pay for the stock. But the whole thing was done on a shoestring, and the whole thing was done on faith. And I think I think I read somewhere that Michael Wadley made a deal with all the crew people that they weren't going to get guaranteed money, but if the film was a success, they'd get paid double. And so I think that's how they ended up doing it. But he pulled in every really good cameraman in the country. I, I was reading that Martin Scorsese and Thelma were actually both also second ADs on the film. Yeah. Uh, I knew that Martin Scorsese was, but I didn't know Thelma was. I know she was editing, but she also apparently was an AD as well. Well, she's one of the nicest, most talented people in the world. She's had a great career working with Marty, and Marty's been very smart smart to have her working with her. Absolutely. So um, if I throw some names out, I just want you to give me your first reaction as remembering Woodstock. John Sebastian. John Sebastian was not booked on the festival. John Sebastian was walking down the street, dressed in tie-dye from head to toe, stoned out of his gourd, carrying a guitar. And Richie Havens had been on and opened the show. And so I just said, there's John Sebastian. I said, go get him. And they got him, and he came up on stage, and we said, hey, man, you want to play? And he said, sure, cool. I'd like you to hear a tune about, I guess, about those discussions that I was talking about that I seem to have had in so many small circles of friends around living rooms around pipes when uh, they weren't selling no papers on this street and we weren't walking around this beautiful green place smoking and uh, not being afraid why must every generation think that folks are square and no matter where the heads are they know moms ain't there Cause I swore when I was small that I'd remember when I knew what's wrong with uh, and he and Country Joe McDonald were two people who would come just because they wanted to hear the music. They were musicians, they wanted to hear all the other guys. McDonald was not booked until the second day. And after John finished, uh, I knew Joe pretty well because uh, we'd been in Europe together there. And I said to Joe, you want to play? And he said, no, the band's not here. We're not scheduled till tomorrow. I said, remember in Amsterdam a few months ago, you said you might like to try to do a solo gig. And uh, he said, yeah, I remember saying that. And I said, well, about the solo gig, how about now? (laughs) And uh, he said, you're crazy. And I said, yeah, I know I am, but I haven't got any any other talent. 
And he said, well, can you get a guitar? So we got a guitar. Can you get a capo? Yeah, we got a capo. Will you go on? Okay, might as well, I'm here. And he went on on Friday and did that first round. Strong man, Uncle Sam, need your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the 30 gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. With your involvement and having all of these people that you didn't expect, and then you have a film crew and the musicians and everyone, how logistically it sounds like a nightmare to me. Herding cats. <laughs> God, I love that. The good thing is that we didn't dwell on that. We didn't think about it. Just went ahead and went, just had a direction and followed the direction. And the audience worked with us. That's the great thing about the PBS documentary, is it is mainly about the crowd and the crowd who were part of the whole thing. Without the crowd's cooperation, without their help to each other and to us, it never would have happened. Well, I think you're speaking to the crowd. You are a great soother of the masses. I mean, the, you had, you had an, a very special way of talking to everybody, like you were talking to each person individually well thank you pure dumb luck you know it, it was a it was like a salve over what could have been a really kind of nasty experience for a lot of people well there's a funny thing about that we had hired some new york disc jockeys to be announcers and the first thing i heard on friday was some guy saying hey groovy guys and gals here we are and i went uh-oh <laughs> so we canned them real fast and somebody said, okay, well, you've done that. You're now the announcer. So it was like, oh, boy, that's, I got to talk myself into it. On top of everything else, I'm sure you were dealing with. Uh, right. Just what right. I needed. Uh, but it worked, and they were cooperative, and they were friendly. And I think we felt that we were all in it together, the audience and us, and the musicians. So when you were, uh, you know, all those times that you were on the stage and you're looking out at this sea of people, what did you feel? Well, you felt a tremendous amount of responsibility because you were the person that was giving them direction and giving them help and looking to them to help back. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, I, I don't know who was responsible. You could probably tell me for bringing in the hog farm or, or whether they just showed up. Stanley Goldstein, who's dead now, which is a, sh a shame. But Stan knew the hog farm, and he sat down at a meeting in the downtown office and said, we need to get this group, this commune from New Mexico to come up and help us. And we all thought he was crazy, but we listened and said, okay. The hog farm were invaluable. They were another factor that was an accident that we brought in, who helped with the campgrounds, helped feed the people. I, I'll never forget, and I still say that the only woman who's ever terrified me in my life 
is Lisa Long. <laughs> she walked into my office and said, give me $3,000 to feed the people. I said, what the hell are you talking about? And so she explained that they would put together a free kitchen for the people. He said, she said, people are not going to bring all this stuff. So I gave her three grand, and she went to New York, and she spent the three grand on bulgur wheat and oats and rice and uh, granola and the rest of it, and bought the equipment, and then went up to the office in New York and went to John and Joel and said, I need 3000 more. <laughs> and so she got $6,000, every single penny she spent on the free kitchen, which I figure fed between... Uh, 150 and 200,000 people throughout the festival. We have interviewed Lisa and talked about these very things. Wavy Gravy and his line, uh, we're going to have breakfast for 400,000. Breakfast in bed yeah, breakfast for 400,000 right. people. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. Now, it's not going to be steak and eggs or anything. But it's going to be good food, and we're going to get it to you. It's not just the hog farm, either. It's like the Ojai Mountain family and the pranksters and everybody else that has volunteered and put in their time into the free kitchens. In fact, it's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man! And Tom Law, who taught a yoga class that morning, was Lisa's then-husband. Right. Uh, when the New York City police commissioner pulled all the cops who we'd hired as security off the thing, Wavy became the head of the Peace Corps. He was just wonderful. They were, they helped us keep things in order, keep things happening. And the whole attitude, their attitude, which was our attitude, was nobody's pushing anybody around to do anything. Right. This is this is a cooperative venture. And it was a cooperative Yeah, venture. it's amazing when you when you think about that they fed hundreds of thousands for free and also helped, medically helped a lot of people who were having bad trips. Absolutely. We had a medical guy, a guy named Bill Abruzzi, who was a doctor up there who set up the medical facility. But Abby Hoffman, who I knew from my days at the Fillmore in New York, uh, and he was running the Yippies in those days, Abby just volunteered and went in and founded the Trips Tent to help the kids who were having a bad trip or something like that come down and be, you know, peaceful. And that was it. that's what it was. There was not one case of physical violence from one person to another. The initial reaction that everybody had, the audience, the people who put it together, the people who were working on it was, let's make this work and let's make it be positive. Let's have fun. Why do you think something like that, you know, where you have this real community effort, you know, all these people working together, why do you think that we can't reproduce that today? Well, I don't know that it can be reproduced. I tried 10 years later to do one and didn't make sense and didn't and drop the idea. Uh, then it was because we all wanted to. And John could have gone bankrupt. John and Joel could have gone bankrupt and forgotten the whole damn thing and just wouldn't do it. They were gentlemen. They felt they had done it. We'd survived it. The audience had been happy that we pulled it off. And they took them 10 years to break even. Uh, and they never thought they were going to break even. So do you think do you think there are gentlemen promoters like that left, gentlemen investors? Do you think they no, exist anymore? I don't think so. No. I don't know. I, I retired years ago. <laughs> uh, 
But I don't think that's the attitude. The attitude now is that it's all about the money. So, but I'm take, I want to take it a step further. Like, do you think it was something bigger than all of us that was keeping this together and moving? I mean, something magical. Do you think there was something magical in that way? Well, I think, yeah, yeah, magical could be a word. I think the thing is that in that era and in that event and that time, there were people who would listen to each other and would work together. Mm-hmm. If I ask somebody, somebody being the audience, you know, half a million people, to do something, they did it. Mm-hmm. So do you think that there is, uh, I, I don't know if you have any, do you have any children? Or No. no. Okay, so uh, I don't either. But if you think about the young people today, do you think that um, there's something they can learn from Woodstock? I think so. I mean, the closest I have to kids is my nephew, Eric, who has become a film producer and produced the Creating Woodstock film. And he understood the effort and the work. And they're the ones who stay, the ones who stick with us, are the ones who are positive. There isn't any room for being negative. It's, life is too damn short. One of the things we're trying to get at is that spirit that for a lot of us started back Woodstock, the anti-war movement, the summer of love, those things were all things that made that counterculture a powerhouse. And that's not there anymore. No. And no. So what is there? I mean, is there something left? I think people like to look back and think about Woodstock as something in a positive vein, that everybody did work together. It did work and it made sense. Uh, I think the whole music business has changed. The world has changed. Uh, politics have changed. I mean, God help us if we'd had this idiot in 1969. I mean, we had Nixon, who was bad enough. But uh, I think it goes from Max Yasker reading about the troubles we were having, getting a site, and feeling, maybe I can help these kids because I've got a piece of property. And he did. We have a gentleman with us. It's the gentleman upon whose farm we are, Mr. Max Yasger. I'm a farmer. I don't know. I don't know how to speak to 20 people at one time, let alone a crowd like this. But I think you people have proven something to the world. Not only to town of Bethel or Sullivan County or New York State, you've proven something to the world. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. We have had no idea that there would be this size group. And because of that, you've had quite a few inconveniences as far as water and food and so forth. Your producers have done a mammoth job to see that you're taken care of. They enjoy a vote of thanks. But above that, the important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music. 
and have nothing but fun in music. And I, God bless you for it. Max actually saved the whole thing. So um, what do you think is the message? I mean, instead of saying like, oh, Woodstock was this great one-time thing that will never, ever happen again. I mean, when people left there, when there was that half a million that were there, and then there was another, from what I understand, more than a million people who tried to get there couldn't get there. According, so, to, I, the state according to the state police, they showed me a satellite photograph. Uh, there were two million people trying to get in. Yeah, so all those people, left with something that propelled them forward to become the people, the adults that we became. I think that's really true. And I think it happened because it could happen, because every single aspect of the thing, from the audience to the production to the film uh, to the people in the town, uh, all worked together to try to make it work. And whether that exists now or not, I'm not sure. Does it exist for you? Uh, it's been, I, mean, I would say, you know, I, I'm 80 now, and I would definitely say that Woodstock is the seminal event of my life. Uh, I've lived in 17 states and five countries. I've had as good a life as anybody could ever ask for. I've got two shows here in Santa Fe, New Mexico that are coming up that are art and antique shows, and we try to run them the same way we did Woodstock. We try to be nice to people, because that works. What was the most rewarding part of your job and the hardest part? And were they the same thing? Well, I think the hardest part was realizing that I was responsible in a lot of ways for the attitude and the comfort and mental comfort of the audience and thinking all the time that what I had to say was going to have to be something that would keep everybody happy and keep everybody calm and working together. I mean, I remember Joan Baez closing Friday night, and her wonderful, sweet voice. She was the perfect good night audience act on Friday night. And it was just pretty much, you could say to the people, all right, you've had a wonderful sort of lullaby. Uh, everybody go to sleep and we'll start again tomorrow. most rewarding thing of the whole experience for you? That I lived through it. That you like? <laughs> That's great. No, I think the other, on the other end of the spectrum, we had the storm. Uh, we had, it was a tornado, and there was wind, there was rain, 
I had a mic in my hand that was shocking me. Looks like we're going to get a little bit of rain, so you better cover up. If it does, and if, you, if we should have any slight power problem, just cool it out. We'll sit here with you. We'll be okay. Get off the safe. I see it. The wind is blowing this way. Please be on this side of the towers. Everyone in the back, please move back. Just take it calm and easy. All right, everybody, just sit down. Wrap yourself up. We're going to have to ride it out. Hold on to your neighbor, man. Please get off those towers. We don't need any extra weight on them. Uh, somebody told me that my wife had fallen and broken her ankle. Somebody told me that Joan Baez had had a miscarriage. Somebody told me that my dog, who I love, was loose in the audience and there was somebody out there with a gun. All of them were not true. So I... That's a lot to come in. And then I looked down and on this stage, there's just me and Michael Wadley with a camera recording it. And it's as close to a nervous breakdown as I've ever come. And I didn't know whether to kiss Wadley or kick him, but it was wonderful. Hey, if you think really hard, maybe we can stop this rain. Get up. No rain, 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 When I heard your story about Jimi Hendrix arriving at the, I guess it was a small airport, and him finding these two, I guess, two young guys or something. Can you retell that story? Yeah. They called, and Jimmy said, we're in this airport, and we just can't get in. We keep trying, we keep trying, we keep trying. But Mike Jeffries, who was Jimmy's manager, and I talked for the three days up until Jimmy showed up. They were going to come and play. They were not booked to be the last. They were, in fact, the most expensive band that we played because we had paid them $35,000 for two performances, the Band of Gypsies and Jimmy. So I said, see if you can find two kids in a car and talk them into coming to Woodstock, and we'll get you in and you can play. I don't know who those guys were, but they brought them in, and it was about 8.30 in the morning, Monday morning. We kept everybody playing all night, Sunday night, because we didn't want to have everybody out on the roads, but everybody left anyway. So when Jimmy played, there were probably only about 50,000 people left. But I got him on stage and went back to my trailer and crashed because I was exhausted and went to sleep through most of his set and then heard the Star Spangled Banner and woke up and thought, oh, it's over. The Jimi Hendrix Experience. It's a miracle that John and his crew were able to pull it off. He was barely 30 at the time. And what's really amazing is how, out of what seemed like utter chaos, they created a new nation founded on peace, love, and community. 
themes that still resonate today. As I said earlier, this podcast is a conversation, and we really want to hear your thoughts, memories, and suggestions. On that note, here are a couple of Woodstock moments from our listeners. Hi, this is Ned Weissman coming to you from beautiful Binghamton, New York. In the summer of 1969, I moved from my parents' house in Queens to a five-story walk-up at 75 East 3rd Street in Manhattan. The Hells Angels clubhouse was across the street, and the Fillmore East was around the corner on 2nd Avenue. So the whole summer was quite exciting. So the first night of Woodstock, we actually sent a, a group ahead of us to tell us what was going on. And once they told us the coast was clear, we started packing up our drugs in a hollowed-out candle and prepared to make the move up there. In the early morning hours, we all dropped acid, went to get in the car, and as we were going down the street, the Hells Angels and the locals, mostly Puerto Ricans, were having a gun battle. Who had what to do in the on 75 East 3rd, on East 3rd Street? The Hells Angels and the local residents were having a gun battle to determine who had the upper hand on East 3rd Street. We ran to the car and somehow got on the throughway and met a gigantic traffic jam, eventually ditched the car, and when we got to the walk the two miles to the site, we found a camping area right on the edge of the helicopter landing pad behind the stage. Now, when we got there, it just started pouring. So we all just got inside the tent and cracked open the secret candle and smoked as much hash as humanly possible. Walked around a little bit. There was actually a second stage that the hog farm had built and the the famous bus was there. The Merry Pranksters bus was there. So I was able to get on the bus for the first time there at Woodstock, and uh, then hear the new writers play a set on the second stage. also bumped into Bob Weir, and he turned down my offer of electric Kool-Aid, which was I was carrying around in a canteen. Anyway, after another day, it was, it was actually way too chaotic for us to stay there. It was, I didn't, we weren't having a good time. We all jumped in my friend's 1967 Mustang. I was sitting on the back hood and we drove 45 miles or so to a cabin that we had rented in Lou Beach, which is near Roscoe, and uh, spent a week having a great time hanging out in the lake and going swimming in a creek, and that was actually more fun than Woodstock. But I would never go back and change anything. It was as much fun as you could have with your clothes on and off. Hi, this is Suzette Fowler from Cleveland, Ohio. Wow, I just finished the podcast with Carol Green and Richie Havens. You know, I, I'm just leaving this message, I guess, because I want the producers, directors to understand how awesome it was for me to be taken back to that time, you know, peace, love, and freedom which I hadn't thought about in so many years. It's kind of relevant to today, so I'm feeling good. It reminded me that we can still hope 
and believe and have faith that it's all going to turn out okay in the end. So thanks. Looking forward to the next podcast. Suzette nailed it. Her reaction is exactly what we hope we are doing for all of you. If you have a Woodstock moment that you would like to share with us, whether you were there or you were stuck at your summer job or you were over in Vietnam, we would love to hear your memory. So just record your voice using the voice recorder on your phone. Let us know your name and where you're from. Keep it short and email that sound file to us at rgen2019 at gmail.com. That's O-U-R-G-E-N 2019 at gmail.com. That's O-U-R-G-E-N 2019 at gmail.com. We'll try and work you into the next podcast if possible. Go to our website to see a step-by-step guide on recording yourself, www.talkingaboutourgeneration.com. That's talking without the G and about without the A. Also remember to like our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave a comment, give us a star rating, and share our podcast with your friends and family. We need you to succeed. I also wanted to mention to you that we include transcripts of all of our episodes on our website. The program highlights the text as it's spoken, so you can listen and follow along with the words. Just click on the Read Along Transcripts button. Try it out. It's pretty cool. We're going to end today with a song we came across by Cody Francis called Weather Any Storm. It seemed appropriate given John's remarkable retelling of how the crowd and the crew at Woodstock weathered that intense storm. He called it a tornado. They had no shelter. It could have been a terrible disaster, but that audience didn't complain. They just stayed. They held on to each other, shared wet blankets. They even created a huge human mudslide from all that muck that happened after the rain taking something dark and frightening and turning it into a moment of solidarity and strength and fun. And I think that had a lot to do with John's positive energy and his calm message, we can get through this together. That's totally relevant today. No matter where we are in our lives and what we have or don't have, life has thrown us all into that tornado right now. But like John said, with some positive thoughts, we can get through this together. Here's Cody. When we wake, hear the birds and see the sun. Side by side, our fears are done. Oh, the good times just begun. Oh, we know what we have, let's hold on tight. Found what we're looking for in life Call us crazy, but things are finally right With you and I, the future is bright You and I, we got it
sleep Hear the crickets, see the moon Side by side and through and through No limit to what we can do Oh, we know what we have, let's hold on tight Found what we're looking for in life Call us crazy, but things are finally right Simmons, and this is Talking About Our Generation. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, everybody, and stay in touch. COVID-19 is spreading in the United States, and leaving your home increases your chances of getting and spreading the virus. Stay home except to get groceries, medications, or other essentials. Check state or local government guidance for where you are. If you must leave the house for essential items, Take the following steps to help avoid the spread of COVID-19. Maintain social distance, approximately 6 feet or 2 meters from others. Wear a cloth face covering in public. This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests, as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law, Section 107, which reads, The Fair Use of a Copyrighted Work, for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website, at talkingaboutourgeneration.com.